Um, If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, if you're new to Bible study, Luke is in the New Testament, the later second half of uh, Scripture of the Bible. It's uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third gospel. And uh, if you were here last week, we kicked off this series, as Catherine mentioned, called Jesus a Life. There's a lot of different views and um, even misconceptions on who Jesus is and that our culture paints, that even some churches paint. And we just want to look at Scripture and really start to journey through the Gospel of Luke, this collection of eyewitness accounts, and look to see who is Jesus, kind of answer that. And so we started that last week. We're going to be on this journey for a total of 12 weeks and Last week, if you were here, um, coming off of Christmas Eve and celebrating the birth of Jesus, we uh, looked at the only recorded account in the Gospels of Jesus' kind of early years. He was a preteen, 12 years old. If you remember, uh, him and his family went to uh, Jerusalem. They traveled there to celebrate the feast of the Passover. Parents left, and Jesus said, I'm staying here. And he stayed, and they get a day's journey away, and they're like, where's Jesus. And so they go back, they find him amongst teachers, and he's learning. And Jesus' first words that are recorded in Scripture, Jesus says, hey, like, why are you looking for me? I need to be in my Father's house. So it was just this moment that we saw last week that we talked about, and we're going to see this throughout the Gospel of Luke, where Luke really paints this picture of Jesus' humanity, that he's fully man, his divinity, that he's fully God, and that there is a mission, there's this kingdom mindset that Jesus comes and kind of turns this mindset or this mission upside down of what people thought he would look like as the Messiah and Christ and um, turn it completely where, kind of blow their minds in some, in some things that they thought and even hoped for. And hopefully, as Catherine said to you, you grab one of these reading plans and whether you are kind of reading before Sunday, or maybe you're going to read chapter 3 after today. Either way, man, we just want you to be in God's Word. So make sure you grab one of those. You can follow along. And I would love your insight as you're reading, as you're studying in this. But we come to this moment in Luke chapter 3 that up until this point, Luke is really setting the stage. That sounded really country there, sitting, all right? He's really setting the stage, all right, for what Jesus is about to do. That Uh, His ministry, his message, his purpose, uh, up until this point, we see in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's setting the stage for really this moment that in a lot of ways is really the embarkment of Jesus's ministry. And so we're going to look at Jesus's baptism, and it's really in the gospel of Luke, while it's in all gospels, um, as we're in Luke um, for the next 12 weeks, it's really just two verses. So Um, In Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, follow along, it'll be on the screens as well. Luke records it this way. It says, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son, with whom I am well 
pleased. Now, can you imagine being there in this moment? Like, I don't know about you, I long to hear God's audible voice, okay? I'm just going to be honest. Like, I wish it would, life would just seem a lot easier that when you're making really tough decisions and it's like, okay, God, what should I do here? That he's like, do this, Dustin, or don't do this, you idiot, you know? Like, don't you wish it was that easy? And I do think God would call me an idiot, all right? Um, I don't know if that's theologically correct. But I'm just saying, it would be easier if we heard the voice of God. So imagine, here is this crowd. It's not just, some, not just Jesus by himself, but John the Baptist and this crowd about to be baptized at the Jordan River. Jesus gets baptized. The heavens open. The Holy Spirit of God descends from heaven like a a form of a dove, and God's audible voice speaks. Now, if I was there, it'd be like one of those events that's like, man, that's awesome. You know, like more so, like just recently, I hear a lot of people that see the new Spider-Man. They're like, you got to go see it. It's incredible. Now, think about like, this is Jesus. And in this moment, man, there's got to be a lot of talk, a lot of, man, I would just want to be there. So incredible to witness this. But at the same time, what I find so interesting is that with Luke's account, there really is no fanfare. It's not some over-the-top, extra extravagant story. It is, hey, Jesus was there. He got baptized. He was praying, got baptized. The heavens opened up. Uh, dove, um, Holy Spirit came down, descended from heaven. God spoke. That was it. It's pretty simple, but there's a lot to unpack this morning on what this means and what this looks like. So we're just going to dig in. Hopefully it, it might feel like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant this morning, and that's okay. I'm a processor. Maybe just take notes. Um, as Wayne always says, listen fast, okay? Um, and we'll walk through this. If you have questions, feel free to contact me because I know some of it is theologically deep, and I want to walk us through that in at least a, a small amount of time that we have. But if you're taking notes, the very first thing I just want to uh, point out that we observe at Jesus' baptism is that we see a Savior among sinners. We see a Savior among sinners. Now, I got to give you some context and kind of connect the dots of what's happening here. I think that's fair. It does it, the story justice. So, Jesus is baptized by a guy by the name of John the Baptist, okay? Now, he's not John the Baptist because he's Southern Baptist and likes to eat Mexican after church because that's what Southern Baptists do, all right? He's John the Baptist because he was known for baptizing, all right? Not the Apostle John or the God like, like we get in the, uh, in, in the Bible, but the John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was actually a relative of Jesus, And if you look back in Luke chapter 1, right before the birth of Jesus, you will see there's this lady named Elizabeth, her husband Zechariah, and they're older in age. She's barren, not able to have children. And and so what ends up happening is they're praying and praying and praying, and an angel shows up to Elizabeth and says, you are going to be with child, and he is going to prepare the way of the Messiah, of the coming Christ. So that's John the Baptist. So Zechariah was a Levitical priest. Um, they had kind of grown accustomed, at, uh, just kind of mundane in their relationship with God, but still worshiping God. And God comes and does that. Now, uh, just a little bit later, if you remember the Christmas story, the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary, a virgin in- engaged to Joseph, and says, hey, you're going to be with child. You are going to conceive a child by the Holy Spirit. And do you remember her response? She first asked, how's that going to be? I'm a virgin. And Gabriel says, 
hey, he's going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And just to let you know, Elizabeth is carrying a child. And then the angel says, with God, anything is possible. And so here's what's awesome is that Mary, Jesus' mom, and Elizabeth, this relative, are both recipients of really miracle conceptions. And so John the Baptist is born, and uh, he's born approximately six months before Jesus. And I'm sure they maybe had some family functions, you know, whatever. I don't know. Scripture doesn't account to that. But what we do know is that Jesus stays in Nazareth, takes on um, really his father's trade, which was culturally the norm, becomes a carpenter, is doing those things, a builder. Um, And then John the Baptist, actually, God shows up to him, and he's really a New Testament prophet. So God speaks to him and says, you're going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And John the Baptist actually lives in the wilderness. He's kind of a weird, odd dude because he's wearing like camel hair clothes and he's eating honey and locusts. Kind of sounds like some of our worship team members. But um, no offense, guys. That's true. But, uh, you know, so he's out in the wilderness doing his thing and God shows up in kind of this kind of a New Testament prophet type way. His message is telling everybody the Messiah is coming. You need to prepare yourself. So it was like this message of preparation. So what he did is he would travel around and he would tell people, hey, you need to repent and be baptized for the kingdom of God is near. And so that was his message, loud and clear. There was no like sexy way to put it. There was no easy message. He sees the Pharisees and his first words to the Pharisees are, you are a brood of vipers. Now, that's not the way to build a church, okay? And so he's going, and he calls them out, and he's like, you need to repent and be baptized. And so what was happening in this is that then John the Baptist would go to the Jordan River, the Jordan River being significant because they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, if you remember Old Testament history. So they would go to the Jordan River, and people would come to be baptized. Now, they were baptized really because of two things. One, for repentance. That is what John the Baptist was preaching. We see in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verse 11, this is what he says. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he, talking about Jesus, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So you see the contrast. John the Baptist is baptizing for repentance. So people gathered to be baptized as a confession of sin and a symbolism of, hey, I'm messed up. I have sin in my life. I need to get baptized. And so they would come to the Jordan River, be baptized by John to show their repentance and confession of sin. Now, the other type of baptism is what's called a proselyte baptism, all right? Now, this is for people who are not born of the nation of Israel. They're non-Jewish. They're a Gentile. And if you remember in biblical days, man, Gentiles were like the outcasts because the Jews thought highly of themselves. Hey, we're God's chosen people. We are the nation of God. We are Israel. And so what would happen is that Gentiles that recognized 
hey, I'm separated from God. I'm alienated from his grace. I need a relationship with God. I'm not born into the nation of Israel, but I would like to convert to Judaism. They would come and convert through a proselyte baptism to say, hey, I recognize all these things, my separation from God, I need to be baptized. And so they would be baptized by John the Baptist, all for, the, for really preparation of Jesus is coming or the Messiah is coming and you better be ready. So there is kind of a scare tactic in some sense of, hey, I hope I'm ready before the Messiah comes because I don't want to go to hell. And so you have this and the Jews really didn't like this message from John the Baptist because like I said, they prided themselves to say, hey, we're God's chosen nation. Don't let the Gentiles in this. You see this, Jesus even comes, teaches, does ministry, miracles, all those things, and they still don't get it. Even the disciples were like, this gospel's for all people? And Jesus like, yeah. So John the Baptist is preparing the way here for the crowd. So think about with those things in mind, here is the crowd, and they're all going to be baptized for either repentance of sin or a proselyte baptism to convert to Judaism. And we can see in other gospel, gospel accounts, Luke doesn't really detail it, which is really interesting because he offers a lot of details in other ways, is that I can imagine John the Baptist, man, he's in his rhythm, he's dunking people, and he looks up and he sees Jesus. And at this point, Jesus is about 30 years old. And I mean, I'm just going to be honest, if someone claims or your parents claim that their child is the son of God, you know who that person is. And so he shows up, and John the Baptist might not know fully because he hasn't seen him in a long time. He's been living in the wilderness. But we get to this point where he's going to recognize who Jesus is. And at least other people would be there. But you don't see that fanfare. You don't see Jesus showing up like Ric Flair to a WWE, you know, thing like, woo, you know, like I'm here. You know, nature boy. He, he, he just fat, was fitting in to the crowd. And I can imagine that, he show, that John the Baptist, we see this in Matthew's account, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. Now, I can imagine if I'm John the Baptist, I'm probably thinking to myself, this is a horrible PR thing because Jesus, you're coming you're sinless, you're the son of God, your parents proclaim that you're the Messiah, and that you're sinless and perfect and holy and righteous, and you're going to be baptized? You're, you're telling people that you have sin in your life that needs to be confessed and repented of, or you're saying you're not born of the nation of Israel, and so that doesn't make any sense. But Jesus then comes and he's like, hey, I need to be Baptized. So it brings us to like the number one question when it comes to this. Why was Jesus baptized? Have you ever asked that? I mean, if I was Jesus, which clearly I'm not, I would be like, I'm Jesus. I ain't doing that. You know? But this is what's so great is that Jesus gives us an answer for this. Now, if you read historical commentaries and some different books, some different writers, there's a lot of different, like with anything, there's some theories on why Jesus got baptized. I've read anything from Jesus got baptized to appease his uh, mom and dad, all right? Like, mom, okay, I can, fine, I'll do it, all right? I'll just get baptized. You know, like, if you grew up in, like, the Catholic church or maybe Orthodox, you probably understand what I'm talking about. Like, hey, I need to do it. That's what my parents said, or they made that decision for me. And so some writers think that he's just appeasing his parents. Some would say that he's kind of, that Jesus is being nice and really just affirming 
the, the ministry of John the Baptist. He's my relative. I, need, I just need to go and kind of affirm what he's doing. So let me go get baptized. It's, it's kind of like the way I look at that, it's kind of like when you know when you have a family member that is, okay, this is going to sound really bad, but just bear with me, okay, and I'll ask for forgiveness later. You have a family member who's a part of a multi-level marketing thing. And then you don't want to do it, but you feel obligated to do it, you know, because it gets really awkward at Christmas and Thanksgiving. So you buy like a little Mary Kay or a little Plexus or a little whatever, you know, and then it gets really awkward. Okay, I feel like this is like, okay, I just need to do it, you know, which is totally unbiblical. Neither one of those, that or Apis' parents are there. Then you have what's an uh, ancient view is what's known as a Gnostic view. And that is kind of this self-redemption where Jesus was a sinner that he needed this. And so up until this time, he was fully man and he, was, he had sin in his life. And at his baptism, then he was forgiven and washed clean per se. So you have that view. None of that is anywhere in scripture. We could even look at, at Hebrews 4.15. It says that he knew no sin. And so why was he baptized? He gives us this answer um, in Matthew 3. He says this, He says, it is, this is Jesus' words, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, let me repeat that. This is what Jesus says. The reason I need to get baptized, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus looks at John the Baptist and he's like, I'm not baptizing you. You need to baptize me. He said, no, 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 no. We are doing this because it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, you might, you might have caught us. Like, who's Jesus talking to? We're going to talk about that in the next point. Who is he talking to? But let's just focus on the, for all, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, we see in Scripture, Jesus comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so what this means, what Jesus is essentially saying, is that he had to do what God required to be done. For him to be righteous, for him to be perfect, for him to be sinless, that he needed to do and to walk in perfect obedience to God. And this is what God desired. And so because of that obedience, because of that righteousness, and to fulfill the righteousness, that was able to then um, satisfy the wrath of God and be credited to you and I and our account. So essentially, he was the perfect lamb. Are you tracking with me? Okay. He was sinless. He had to do everything according to God's word and walk in that righteousness and in that obedience so that when he died on the cross, he was the perfect sinless lamb of God who took the place for you and me. If there was any ounce of disobedience, that couldn't be done. So he came to fulfill that righteousness and our sake. And so if you're taking notes, think about this. Jesus stepped in obedience and fulfilled all righteousness because you and I can't. We can't earn our way to heaven. We can't do enough things to earn salvation, to save our own souls. We can't have this Gnostic view of self-redemption to say, I'm going to do whatever it takes. If I work really hard and I'm a really good person and I just, I never cuss, I never drink, I never go to jail, I'll be good, I'll go to heaven, all those things. No, doesn't matter how good you are. It's only because of Jesus stepping in obedience, fulfilling that righteousness that you and I can spend eternity in heaven. So why was Jesus baptized? To fulfill all righteousness. It was a step of obedience. And because of that, we see in this moment, he is a savior among sinners. And this is what I love, is that this is totally Jesus. 
Jesus doesn't show up and say, everybody get out of the way. Jesus is here, <laughs> you know. Move, 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 little peasants. I'm the son of God. <laughs> we don't see that anywhere in scripture. He's just standing there, waiting his turn. And maybe in addition, maybe it, it gives us an example that we need to be baptized. Maybe it shows so that we can identify that, hey, like I need to do that too. But there wasn't any some, you know, big spotlight on him. Like, Everybody get out of the way. He's next. Cut in front of the line. There's no fanfare. And what I love is that we just see Jesus getting baptized. Second point this morning in these two verses, man, it's so awesome. We see and observe a ministry filled with the Holy Spirit. It's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I know in Baptist churches, we don't like to talk about the Holy Spirit because someone's going to start speaking in tongues and it gets all weird, okay? We don't talk about the Spirit uh, enough. But this is so important right here. In other Gospels, it doesn't say this in Luke, it says that when Jesus came up out of the water. Now, that is where we get the doctrine of baptism by immersion. That means fully dumped, not sprinkled, not sprayed, not spit upon, whatever. You are going all the way under and all the way up. We believe that Jesus, that's really um, especially unique in Southern Baptist theology, that we believe you need to fully uh, immerse yourself and come up because that's what Jesus did. We're trying to follow that example. So that's where we get that. That's for another day, rabbit trail. But after he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends from heaven. So the skies open up. The Holy Spirit descends into heaven um, as a bodily form like a dove. Now, we have to be very careful with this passage. And here's where it kind of gets theologically deep, and it could be a serious rabbit trail um, on this. Because some, at first glance, could say, all right, well, does that mean that Jesus, at that point in time, um, was deficient of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit wasn't in him? And so I would argue, once again, that you see he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is God with us. And so the Holy Spirit has been with him all the time. It kind of goes back to this view that some people hold that are of the Christian faith that would say Jesus was a sinner. He was just a man. And at this time when the Holy Spirit came, then he became God. That this is the point where um, the Holy Spirit comes, embodies Jesus, and that's where he gets his divinity. He didn't have it up until that point, and that is nowhere in Scripture. The second thing that we see in this is another kind of ancient theory um, called modalism. All right, this, I'm, I know I'm being super nerdy, but I think it's important for you to understand this. Modalism looks at the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and while they confess that God is one true God, that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are actually different uh, modes of God. They cannot coexist. That's what modalism believes. So God cannot be simultaneously Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has to switch between the three. So they can't coexist. So God is Father, and then if he wants to become Jesus, he can be Jesus for a period of time, and he can be Holy Spirit. So they do not coexist. Now, if, if you don't believe me, you can get on a rabbit hole with this. Go YouTube it, Google it. There have been creeds. There have been councils. There have been church breakups about this. And so just so you know, and so we're clear, uh, where our church stands and where I stand, we believe on what's called the Trinitarian doctrine, meaning the Holy Spirit um, or the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct 
people that can coexist and God can be all three. Now, they have different roles. And obviously, you have Jesus, the Son of God on earth, and God the Father, creator of all things, Yahweh. And you have the Holy Spirit that dwells inside um, of believers. You, you have that. And this is, what I, this is how you back that up. When Jesus says, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, the us is the Trinity. It wasn't like my imaginary friend over here. <laughs> He's saying the Trinity. We see this kind of language in the um, creation account in Genesis where God says, let's make man in our image. So we see that. Then specifically in this account of baptism, you see all three members of the Trinity coexisting at the same time. You see Jesus, he's being baptized. You see the Holy Spirit descend from heaven, taking on the form of looking like a dove. And then you have God speaking. So they can coexist. And that's where we get this Trinitarian doctrine, this view um, of the Holy Spirit. So I don't want you to think by any means that Jesus was depleted or didn't have the Holy Spirit at this point and that that was coming. The best way I can explain it is that this is really the Holy Spirit coming and really anointing Jesus for special service because he's about to start his ministry. We see Paul talk about this in Acts chapter 10. Here's what Paul says. He's talking, the church is spreading, and he says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So we will see this next week, but after this baptism, the Holy Spirit comes, anoints, and empowers. And he's not deficient of it, but it's just kind of an affirmation and confirmation of, you are the Son of God. And after this, Jesus goes into the wilderness to pray and to fast. And won't you behold that the devil comes and begins to tempt him. And I don't know if you feel this way. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. But isn't it amazing every time you take a step to follow Jesus, Satan attacks. He's right there. And so we'll, we'll talk about that next week. But this is really this special service. Now, let me kind of talk on a personal note here. Since we see the Holy Spirit here, what we celebrated this morning. Baptism is this incredible symbol. There's nothing special about that water. It's a little warm, which is awesome, okay? When you get baptized, it's not freezing cold, but that's water. It's not holy water. We don't import it from the Jordan River and pray over it five times and circle around it. It's water from a hose. But what is symbolic about it is that when we see this, when we become believers, we're baptized in his death, his death on a cross. Meaning that when we recognize our sin, and it is a baptism of repentance in some ways, when we recognize our sin and repent, and we give our life to God and surrender our life to God, does that mean we're automatically perfect? No. But when we realize that, what this symbolizes, that old self pre-Jesus is dead. The old self is gone because Jesus paid the price for that. And now we come up out of the water, and while it does symbolize, hey, the washing away or cleansing of our sin, it, what it represents is now we have newness and life. Why do we have newness and life? Because as believers, the Holy Spirit now dwells within us. That when we become followers of Christ, the Holy Spirit encompasses our body and helps us. It gives us power, gives us encouragement. The main role of the Holy Spirit 
is to give us power to do amazing things and, do, and have boldness in sharing and proclaiming. But it also illuminates Scripture. It illuminates God's Word. It, the Holy Spirit does not tell you anything that's convicting uh, or uh, contrary to Scripture. The Holy Spirit does not tell you to get a divorce. It doesn't tell you to disobey your boss. The, the Holy Spirit doesn't tell you to do things that go against Scripture and following Him. I've seen people that abuse it. Oh, the Holy Spirit told me this. No, He didn't. That's your gut. That's your listening to your heart. And we see that's deceptive. So you have to be very careful with this. But we celebrate this because Jesus, in this moment, in His baptism, paved the way, stepped into obedience, did all those things to fulfill Scripture so that we can have newness and life. And so baptism is a public proclamation, if you will, of this internal and eternal transformation that's taken place through the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? I know it's kind of wordy. And so we celebrate, hey man, uh, Oliver today, and God has done something in his life. He's recognized his sin. He went to God, has the Holy Spirit in him, and now he's celebrating and telling everybody this is what it's about. It was his decision. Jesus was 30 years old. He was immersed. So let me, I'm just throwing this out there. You can send me hate mail later, okay? That's fine. But I'm going to tell you, you know good and well, as I'm talking about this, some of you need to step in obedience with baptism. It needs to be your decision. Now, I'm not here to hold your, your feet to a fire and babysit you along the way, but I can't tell you how many people across all of our campuses, there's that fear, and I get it. While I haven't personally explained it, I've counseled lots of people that you grew up Catholic, you grew up Presbyterian, you grew up Lutheran, who were sprinkled as kids, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful to your parents by any means. But baptism is not a form of salvation. It's not a form of salvation to get you into heaven. There's nothing about that. But what it is, is you making a personal decision to follow Jesus. And while that doesn't cleanse you of your sin, it represents the work of Jesus in your life. And let me just challenge you. I'm, a, I, I'm speaking with great boldness. Let today be that day. Come find me during the invitation. If you want to come forward and say, I need to get baptized, don't be afraid. Step out of your comfort zone. You need to make that decision. Be obedient. Step into that to publicly proclaim what God has done in you. Don't hold that back any longer. Jesus stepped into that obedience. He took that step. And we see that it was a ministry filled with the Holy Spirit. Up until that point, God is guiding him, directing him, and in that moment, confirming and affirming and saying, hey, let's go after this. And then finally, and in closing, we see this. We see and observe an identity declared by the Father. As Jesus comes up out of the water, the, the Holy Spirit descends. Notice to what, what God says. He says, you are my son. You are my loved or beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, this is what I love about this. I never really saw this. Listen to what God doesn't say. He doesn't say, Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and everybody's about to know it. And you're going to do amazing things. You're going to heal people. You're going to create these miracles. You're going to, you're going to, lives are going to be radically changed. You're going to show those Pharisees. And because of all those things, I am well pleased. 
He doesn't say, hey, you are the Savior of the world. And these people don't see it, They're not, they don't recognize it, but you are going to die for all of mankind in this moment. And because of what you're going to do on the cross, I am well pleased. He doesn't say that. This is what I love. Don't miss the beauty of this. What does God say? God says, you are my beloved, what church? Son. He doesn't talk about all the things he's going to do or all these things that might be characterized of him by other people, as his father, he says, you are my son. You're my son. Jesus finds his worth in who his father is declaring him to be, who he is, his identity, not in the things that he does, not in the things he's going to accomplish, not in the people's lives that are going to be changed. He looks at them in that moment, comes down, um, uh, the Holy Spirit comes down and speaks audibly and says, this is my beloved son. You are my son. So he is, God is declaring from his mouth that this is my son. And I almost wonder if we get that mixed up as believers. We find our identity in all the things that we do, either for God or not for God. When we just need to rest in the simple fact is, are you a son or a daughter of God? That's your identity. That's who God is saying. While there are outcomes and overflows of what that looks like in the believer's life, in the moment that we surrender our life to Jesus, in that moment, It's not about what we've done in the past or what we're going to do in the future. It's in that moment. Are we willing to come to the Father and say, I've messed up? And he says, in that, you're my son. So our, as believers, our identity is declared through God's grace, not by our works. It's through the lens of God's grace. Through Jesus being baptized and fulfilling all righteousness, dying on the cross, resurrecting three days later that you and I can be called sons and daughters. You look throughout scripture, if it wasn't for him, we're called sons of disobedience. We're, we're called givers of wrath, deceptive, wicked, all these different things. But because of what Jesus did as he embarks in this baptism, being a part of the start of his ministry, man, he, he stands in the gap of righteousness because we can't do it. And he, our identity is in that. And so my question to you this morning is, how are you declaring God in your life? If God is declaring Jesus as his son, how are you declaring God as your father? The work of Jesus, have you declared that? Is it just been like, okay, I've always kind of believed that? I've always just kind of gone to church. Or are you owning your faith and saying, you know what, I, I've, been a Christian for a long time. I've been in church for a long time. Or maybe you were burned by a church um, or the church or your parents or whatever. It was forced down your throat. I get it. But man, do you own it? And are you declaring, this is what God has done for me? And people in this room need to take a step towards Jesus this morning. Don't let fear hold you back. Don't let uncomfortableness or what people think hold you back. Take a step this morning for Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, man, what a powerful story to see Jesus get baptized. Your son. It'd be so easy just to say, why does he have to get baptized? But there's so much richness just in seeing that he gets baptized by John the Baptist to fulfill all righteousness.
to be obedient. Because we know we're not. We needed a substitute, someone to stand in that chasm that separated us from you. And by your grace, that was through your son, Jesus. And he continued to step in that obedience. Even in the midst of our disobedience, God, you sent him to die for us. And you declared him on that day as your son. And Father, we want to rest in that. So I pray for the person that's here that doesn't know you, cannot wholeheartedly say, I'm a son or a daughter of God because I've never given my life to Jesus. I know of Jesus. I've been to church. I think it's good, but I've never given my life. I pray that today is that day. I also pray for someone who's declared that, but they've never publicly proclaimed it through baptism. Or maybe that decision was made for them by their parents at a young age that God, that now would be the time that they come for. They, They say, I can't wait any longer. I need to be obedient in this. And so Father, Wherever each of us are at, God, let us just rest in you and know that you, Jesus, are the Son of God, the great Messiah. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Hey, let's stand. Let's close in worship together.